a lot of you have asked about uh, a book. What book are we going to read? And I've not, quote-unquote, assigned a book for this class like we did with the worldview class and like we did with the preaching class. Uh, what I have done, second page in your notes, is I've given you a list of books. And these are the books that I am drawing from as I prepare for Institute class on Tuesday nights. Uh, I'm not going to go through this whole list and tell you everything about all these books. Okay, I'm happy to let you look at any of these. You cannot borrow any of these because I'll never see them again. But Amazon sells all of them, and you can get online and you can buy any of them. Let me just mention a few things. The very first book on this list, Richard Bauckham, The Theology of the Book of Revelation. If you read almost any of these other books published after 1993, they're going to quote and footnote Bauckham a million times. Okay? He's sort of the scholarly standard. Now, his book is a little bit scholarly. It's not quite as easy of a read as some of the other books on this list. But I'm pointing it out to you to say all these other guys do a lot of drawing on his work. So that's Bauckham. Uh, Nancy Guthrie, book is titled Blessed, came out uh, earlier this year. This is the book our ladies are using. Uh, our ladies have been asking for a couple years now to study the book of Revelation. And... I've looked at a number of different studies, and every time I've looked at one, I've thought, eh, that's not the best. Nah, eh, I, don't, I don't know about that. Eh, I'm not crazy about this one. I read this book earlier uh, in the year when it first came out. I, th I think it's a great, great book. It's a really, really good book on Revelation. And so I suggested it to the ladies, and that's what they're, they're working through right now. I think the ladies are doing half of this book in the fall and half of this book in the spring. So they're dividing it into two chunks. We're going to divide it into three. Um, two others that I'll mention, Tom Schreiner, two books by Schreiner. Um, if you ask me, a lot of you are going to be curious to know what's the best commentary on the book of Revelation. And my answer is going to be, if I was going to buy one commentary on Revelation, and you want a verse-by-verse -verse approach, somebody who's going to just walk through the text, I would buy Tom Schreiner's ESV Expository Commentary. came out in 2018 by Crossway. Um, this is a relatively new commentary set. If you buy this volume, you get Hebrews through Revelation. So it's sort of a combo deal. It's not individual books of the Bible, but it's multiple books of the Bible. And so you get a lot with this um, big, nice, black, hardcover book. Uh, so that would be the one that I would recommend. And then I really like Schreiner. Schreiner was uh, one of my New Testament professors. He was one of my Greek professors. He's amazing. He's absolutely brilliant. And his book, The Joy of Hearing, is really, really helpful. The Joy of Hearing is not a commentary. So if you... If you want a commentary, if you want the kind of book where you can go verse by verse, sort of passage by passage, and get an answer to a lot of different questions, uh, Blessed may not be the best book for that, and The Joy of Hearing may not be the best for that, and Bauckham's book may not be the best. Those are more theological uh, summaries of the book of Revelation. If you want a commentary, my suggestion would be Schreiner. Um, so anyways, there's the list. 
Uh, all of these are helpful in one way or another. I'm not assigning any of these, but my suggestion to you, if you're really interested in taking a deep dive into Revelation, would be come to these classes and then buy a book. Buy one of these. Any of these would be helpful uh, in some way, shape, or form, and just read through it. You've got, my goodness, you've got a year and a half to get through this book. We're going to go really slow through the book of Revelation, and so you've got plenty of time to read something. All right? Let's jump in with week one. Let me deal with uh, one introductory matter and then some introductory stuff about the book of Revelation. Uh, this is something that we call a manual institute, and what we do in these classes is based on 2 Timothy 2.2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the aim of what we're doing on Tuesday nights is a little bit different than what I do when I stand and preach a sermon on Sunday morning, and it's a little bit different than what I do when I teach my Sunday school class. Uh, the aim of what we're doing tonight is living out 2 Timothy 2.2. And when you look at that verse, you see there's four generations of men represented in that one verse. There's Paul, who's writing. There's Timothy and the witnesses who heard from Paul. There's the faithful men who Timothy and the witnesses are going to entrust these things to. And then the faithful men are going to teach others. So the idea in that verse is that one generation is going to pass it down to the next generation and they're going to pass it down to the next generation and so on and so on. So the aim of what we're, we're doing here is this. And in these classes, I'm not preaching sermons and I'm not teaching like Sunday morning, Sunday school Bible study. My approach to these Tuesday nights is a much closer to what I would do, uh, what I have done when I've taught Bible college seminary classes, is to give you a lot of information, to go through it quickly. I'm giving you a, a handout with a lot of notes and a lot of stuff. If that's your thing, you like filling in blanks, get after it. If that's not your cup of tea and you want to listen, totally fine too. Uh, you do what you need to do to to get the most out of this class. Just know going into it, it's not really the same as a Sunday morning. I'm not going to tell you a lot of stories. I'm not going to have a lot of jokes for you. I'm not going to end every uh, point with a poem or a reference to a song or something like that that you sort of structure a sermon or a Bible study according to. We're just going to jump in and I'm going to give you a lot of stuff. So, with that being said, Revelation. Let's start with the frustration of this book, the frustration of Revelation. This is my favorite quote about the book of Revelation. And by the way, it is called Revelation, not Revelations. If you say, I'm going to the Revelations Bible study, we're sending you to the Methodist church. They study Revelations. We are studying Revelation. It is the revelation that John received while he was on Patmos. So here we go. Frustration of Revelation. Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Okay? All those guys that I just listed out on that list of books, they all believe the Bible's true, they believe it's inspired, they believe it's inerrant, and they do not all agree about the book of Revelation. Okay? There's a lot of views about this book. I'm looking around the room. I promise you right now, me and all of you and all of us, we are not going to all agree about the book of Revelation. Guaranteed, mark it down, 
take it to the bank. There's a lot of views about this book. There's another quote from Ambrose Bierce. Revelation is a noun. It's a famous book in which St. John the Divine concealed all that he knew. The revealing is done by the commentators who know nothing. So that should give you great hope as we jump into this course that all the commentators know absolutely nothing and that I, your fearless instructor, also know nothing. So here we go. This is an important book. Revelation is an important book. Let me give you a couple of thoughts here. Uh, Schreiner says, My contention is that we desperately need the message of Revelation for today's world. The book of Revelation, are you listening? It's not a prophecy chart about the future, but it's a call to be a disciple of Jesus. If you're here for the prophecy chart, I don't have one. If you're looking for one in the book of Revelation, you're not going to find one. It's not what the book is. It is a call to be a disciple of Jesus. John tells us to be faithful and fruitful, and we should not give in to despair, for in the end all will be well. Eugene Peterson says this, Everything in the Revelation can be found in the previous 65 books of the Bible. I promise you that's true. Everything in the book of Revelation you can find in one of the previous 65 books of the Bible. The revelation adds nothing of substance to what we already know. The truth of the gospel is already complete, revealed in Jesus Christ. There is nothing new to say on the subject, but there is a new way to say it. If you're approaching revelation as this is where you get the good stuff, and you're ignoring the other 65 books that came before it, you're completely off track from the get-go. There is nothing in Revelation that you can't find in Genesis through the next 64 books. Okay, Let's talk about the background of this book, just some basic things that you need to sort out and understand. Who is the author of Revelation? I'm going to give you two lines of evidence. The internal evidence, that's what Bible scholars talk about when they look inside a text, inside the book itself. The internal evidence says that the author of Revelation calls himself John. It's a very common name. There's a lot of Johns in the Bible, so that doesn't help us a ton. We also know that the author of Revelation had mastered the Old Testament. You're going to get tired of me saying that sort of thing tonight. Whoever the John is that wrote this book knew the Old Testament backwards, forwards, sideways, upside down. He knew it. He had mastered this book. That's the internal evidence. The external evidence, this is when you look outside of the Bible for answers about who maybe wrote a book in the Bible. Ancient tradition tells us that this John was John the Apostle, the son of Zebedee, brother of James, disciple Jesus loved, the author of the fourth gospel in 1, 2, and 3, John. So let me just trace this external evidence so you understand we're Baptists, we believe the Bible, but sometimes external evidence in tradition is really helpful for answering certain questions. So here's the deal. There's a guy in church history named Irenaeus. In the year 180 AD, Irenaeus, here's his icon over on the right, Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies. Okay? Irenaeus had been personally discipled by a man named Polycarp. That was his mentor. Polycarp lived from 70 A.D. 
to 160 AD when Polycarp was a young man, he knew John the Apostle when John the Apostle was an old man. And in this book written in 180 AD, Irenaeus says the John that you read about in Revelation is John the Apostle. There's all sorts of other theories about different Johns that it may be, but this is a pretty tight chain of history to say this is the guy who wrote it, John the Apostle. So we're going to go with John as we go through this class. Who did he write it to? Who's the audience of the book? You have to understand this or the rest of the book makes no sense. Revelation was written to seven real churches. They were in the Roman province of Asia. The names of these churches are Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Okay? Seven real churches. These churches were as real as you walking into Emmanuel Baptist Church tonight and sitting down. You could have gone to these cities. You could have gone to these churches. You could have sat in their buildings, their facility. You could have met with their people. They were real life churches, real people in these churches. And we'll get to this next week when we talk about the letters in chapter 2 and chapter 3. But these seven churches were basically the mail route in Asia Minor. Uh, so the map looks like this. This is what we would call Turkey. And the western part of this province is the Roman province of Asia. And you can see Patmos is down with the dots. It's an island out in the Aegean Sea. And if you were to leave Patmos and you were to ride the mail circuit here in the province of Asia, you would go Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. That's the exact order that the churches are in when these letters show up in chapter 2 and chapter 3. So I'm showing you this map so you just really get in your brain. These are actual real churches. They're not made-up churches. They're not fictional churches. They're not imaginary sort of representative churches. They're actual people who received this letter, okay? Seven is significant. We're going to talk about numbers a lot in the book of Revelation. Seven is the number of completeness. So I'm telling you these were real churches. I'm also telling you by, that by writing to seven churches, John indicates his message is addressed to specific churches as representative of all the churches. So chapter 2 and chapter 3, there's seven letters. Seven's the number of completeness. Could have written to six, could have written to eight, could have written to nine, could have written to four, any number. He chose seven. And they're real churches. But in choosing seven, he's also saying these letters aren't just for this church, they're also for every church, for the fullness of who God's people actually are. This is something we talked about on Wednesday nights when we went through a study of hermeneutics. And when we got to the letters that Paul writes in the New Testament, one of the things I kept saying over and over and over again is, these books were not written to us. They're written for us, but they weren't written to us. We are literally reading someone else's mail. What's true of Paul's letters to the churches is also true of the book of Revelation. It was not written to you. John did not have you in mind when he wrote it. It was written for you. 
And you've got to balance that as you interpret the book. It's written to real churches. It's also written for the church. Okay? Let me, let me be even more clear about this. The book of Revelation was not written to American Christians who live in the 21st century and know all about evil Muslim dictators in the Middle East and bad Russian oligarchs in Russia as not who the book is written to. Written for us? Yes. Written to us? No. So if you can understand it, you have to understand who it was written to and what they were dealing with in their actual lives. Okay, when was it written? I'll just throw this out here quickly. There's a lot of talk in the book of Revelation about persecution. So when you study ancient history, there's basically three emperors, three windows of time that fit the bill. Uh, it could be Nero. There was a period of persecution under Nero, 54 to 68. Could be Domitian, 81 to 96. Could be Trajan, 98 to 117. Most scholars think the reign of Nero is too early. Most people do not think that this book was written during the reign of Nero. I read a book about three months ago where the author argued specifically that Revelation was written during the reign of Nero, and I didn't find any of, of his arguments convincing. One of the main pieces of evidence for why Nero's reign is too early is that you see Nero's reign ended in 68. What happened in 70? Temple was destroyed. So in Nero's reign, the temple was still standing. And there's some things in the book of Revelation that probably best make sense uh, if they happen after the temple has been knocked down. So probably Nero is too early. Uh, most people think Trajan is too late. And the reason they think Trajan is too late is that we have pretty good manuscript evidence that the book of Revelation was floating around pretty close to after the time of Trajan. They didn't have printing presses, they didn't have Xerox machines, they didn't have PDFs, they didn't have things to distribute these documents. So you got to have a little bit of time for a scribe to copy it down and somebody to walk it to a different place. So probably Trajan's too late, it probably happened during the reign of Domitian. Also, our buddy Irenaeus, who knew Polycarp, who knew John, Irenaeus says it was during the reign of Domitian. Okay? That's not Bible, but that's a pretty tight chain of evidence saying that it was during the reign of Domitian. We'll talk more about Domitian as we go through the book. Okay? This next section is really important. It's probably the most important piece of introductory material I'm going to give you. What kind of book is Revelation? It's important to begin by asking this question because our answer determines our expectations of the book. The kind of meaning that we expect to find in it. Okay, do you understand that quote? What kind of book you're reading determines what kind of information you expect to find in it. If you go home tonight and your wife has left you two notes, one has a love poem on it, and the other says, butter, milk, eggs, cheese, toilet paper. You look at those two notes immediately and you say, this is one kind of information and this is another kind of information. And the way you look for meaning in those two notes is impacted by what kind of writing it is. 
If you miss what kind of writing Revelation is, you end off in crazy town. So you've got to be sure you answer this question right. Uh, Derek Thomas says the book of Revelation is unlike almost anything else in the Bible. It's a different kind of literature from almost anything else we find in Scripture. So what is it? Here's what it is. The book of Revelation is a unique combination of three things. Apocalypse, prophecy, and epistle. That is straight out of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, verse 3, and verse 4. What you're about to read is Apocalypse and its prophecy and its epistle. It's a letter. So we're going to read that in a minute. We won't read it now, but you'll see these words as they pop up. I want to talk to you about Apocalypse, and I want to talk to you about prophecy, and then I want to talk to you about epistles. Okay, we'll start with apocalypse. The Greek word apokalupsis simply means revelation. That's what it means, to reveal, a revelation. And it's transliterated apocalypse. So this is one of the words in the Bible that is not translated into English. It's transliterated into English. When you translate a word... You take the meaning in this language and you put the meaning into that language. When you transliterate a word, you take the sound in this language and you put that sound into a new language. Okay, So they have not translated the word apocalypse. Uh, when, you, when you hear it in that English form, it's transliterated as apocalypse. Now, when I say Revelation is apocalypse... You're Americans who live in the 21st century, and Hollywood has impacted you and me more than we'd ever imagine. And when I say Revelation is apocalypse, you think, oh, so it's like end of the world stuff. It's like the world's about to get blown up by killer tornadoes with sharks in it, or it's like earthquakes are hitting everywhere, or it's like nuclear war broke out, post-apocalyptic movies. That's what we think of, end-of-the-world type stuff. But what I'm telling you is that apocalypse is a special kind of Jewish writing. It's Jewish writing. It shows up historically after the Old Testament pretty much ends and before the New Testament begins. It just blows up. There's all sorts of apocalyptic writing. And it's a special kind of writing. It's less about a topic and it's more about a genre. So maybe the best way I could help you wrap your mind around this is I could ask you to write a song about your dog dying. And you may say, oh, I know the perfect genre, country music. Country music is perfect for dead dogs. But you may say, I don't like country music. I like hip-hop. You might write a rap song about your dog dying. Or you may say, I'm kind of a death metal guy. So I'm going to go Megadeth, Metallica, heavy metal, and I'm going to write a metal song about my dog dying. They're all about the same thing, but they're different genres of music. Okay, Apocalypse is less about the actual topic, and it's more about a certain way of writing, and you've got to understand that to make sense of it. The book of Revelation reveals a heavenly perspective of life on earth. We tend to get this backwards. We tend to think that Revelation is about 
opening up and letting us peek into heaven. And there is some of that. But mostly what Revelation is, is like pulling back a curtain and letting us see really and truly what's happening on earth. We'll talk about more, we'll talk about that more in a minute. Bauckham says this, John is taken up into heaven in order to see the world from a heavenly perspective. One of the ways you can think about this is PR. I got two alerts on my phone today at the same time. One came from Fox News. One came from CNN. One said, I'm paraphrasing, there's so much inflation the world's about to end. And the other said, good news, inflation is almost gone. That's spin. At least one of them, maybe both of them. Okay? It's spin. It's PR. That's sort of what the book of Revelation is. The book of Revelation is saying, look, you live in the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had a massive PR machine. They did. Massive. Caesars wrote their own histories at times. They wrote what they wanted you to know. And Rome was saying, this is real. And Revelation comes alongside that, the second little ding on your phone, and says, oh, wait a minute. That's not how I see it. Rome says it looks like this. I think it looks like this. It's a different way of viewing life on earth. Okay? When you read it, you've got to pick a side. Am I going to agree with Babylon and their PR machine, or am I going to agree with Jesus and what the book of Revelation says? You've got to pick a side. Um, let's keep going. Apocalyptic imagery. It's not intended to be taken literally. It is intended to be taken seriously. I promise you, I promise you, I believe in the inspiration and the inerrancy of the Bible as much as anybody. Okay? Put me in the Neanderthal camp. I believe this book is true to its core. But I'm telling you, the imagery in apocalyptic writing is not supposed to be taken literally. You are supposed to take it seriously. And I'll let you look the reference here up in Joel and Acts. Joel gives a prophecy about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Joel says when the Holy Spirit comes, there will be astronomical signs that take place. I've read Acts 2 front ways and back ways, and there are little tongues of fire that show up, but there are no astrological signs mentioned. And yet Peter and the apostles said, that's been fulfilled today. They didn't need to go out and say, is there a blood moon? Is there an eclipse? Is there, are there shooting stars? Or, that's not the point. The point of those apocalyptic images in Joel is not that there will be a literal fulfillment, but that there will be a real fulfillment. So we'll keep talking about that as we go through the book. Uh, this is Gorman. Understanding the book of Revelation is apocalyptic literature will encourage us to try to understand the real world situations depicted in cosmic terms that it reflects and addresses. It will encourage us not to take the symbolism literally, that is to think of actual pale green horses or multi-headed beasts or thousand-year periods. These are all symbolic, but that does not make the realities to which they point any less real. 
You can't interpret some of these symbols literally, but you do have to take them seriously, and we'll feel our way through that as we go. One last note on apocalypse. If you get confused, don't be discouraged. There's a man in the Old Testament named Daniel who had an apocalyptic vision, and at the end of it, he went to bed nauseous and sick because he had no idea what it meant. So if Daniel saw an apocalyptic vision and threw his hands in the air and said, I have no idea what that means, then maybe you and I can have the modicum of humility to read some of this stuff and say, man, I don't know. Some of that stuff's confusing. Some of that's tough. And some of it is confusing. And some of it is tough. So that's apocalypse. Let's talk about prophecy. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke for God to the people. They were proclaimers and predictors. We tend to think of prophets as always predicting the future. They did some of that. But sometimes they just proclaimed what God had already said to His people. They did a lot of quoting the book of Deuteronomy. A lot. A lot. A lot. They weren't always inventing new stuff about the future. Sometimes they were actually saying, this is what God has said in the past. In the New Testament, prophets and apostles laid the foundation for the church. You can read about that in Ephesians 2. These two offices ended, prophet and apostle. We don't have apostles today. We don't have prophets today. You only need one foundation, and it's been laid. The prophets and the apostles, that foundation has been laid. We don't have these offices today. Sometimes biblical prophecy is fulfilled literally, and sometimes biblical prophecy is fulfilled more broadly. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Prophets are allowed to use figurative language, just like any of us use on a daily basis. So last night, one of my daughters played a volleyball game against a mean school from Midland. And these Midland girls came over, and we always beat this team. We always beat this team. And they were beating us. And about halfway through the volleyball match, the score table realized they're changing their rotation so the same two girls serve every time. They're cheating. And when I left that game, I talked to one of the other dads, and walking out, I said something in jest like, they are all a bunch of dirty cheaters. They kept doing it. They kept trying to cheat. They kept trying to change the rotation. I said, they are all, all a bunch of dirty cheaters. Does that mean that I think every single person on that volleyball team Every single parent is a dirty person and a cheater. No, that's figurative language to say, hey, that was crazy, man. They were trying to cheat the whole game. They kept trying to do it over and over and over again. It's figurative language. You don't take it literally. You don't walk away and say, well, Pastor Emanuel says everybody in Midland's dirty. Pastor Emanuel said every single person at that school is a cheater. It's figurative language. We use it all the time, right? The Cowboys got destroyed Sunday night. Unfortunately, that's figurative language. They still exist as a team, and they're going to humiliate us again this next week. That's figurative language. You get, to, you, you get to talk that way. 
doesn't mean they got annihilated by a nuclear weapon. It's figurative language. This is what I'm saying to you. Prophets in the Bible, they get to talk with figurative language. And you have to be smart enough to say, I need to take this literally, or maybe this is figurative language and you got to figure that out. Sometimes fulfilled literally, sometimes more broadly. One last point on prophecy. Prophecy often has an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. Isaiah 7 is the great example of this. Isaiah receives a prophecy from the Lord. He passes it on to the people. There's going to be a baby born. The immediate fulfillment is his son, Mahar Shalal Hashbaz. The ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. It's not just one fulfillment of the prophecy, but there's an immediate fulfillment and an ultimate fulfillment. You're going to see that in Revelation as a work of prophecy. All right, epistle. An epistle was an ancient form of letter. We have thousands of these from antiquity, from individuals, people, government folks, businesses, all sorts of stuff. Lots of people wrote epistles. There's a greeting, there's a thanks, there's a body, there's more greetings, uh, and then there's a closing. The imagery and the symbols in a letter must make sense to the original audience. These letters weren't written to you. They were written to seven real churches in the Roman province of Asia. And whatever all the apocalyptic imagery and all the prophecy and all the stuff means, it has to make sense for those people. If you look at the book of Revelation and you say, this is about tanks and helicopters. You're talking about stuff that makes no sense to people who live in the first century in the province of Asia. They have no idea what you're talking about. That doesn't make, it can't mean that. They didn't have any category for that. It can't mean that. It's got to make sense to the original audience, okay? Structure. I'm going to skip over this section. I gave you four examples of how people try to outline the book of Revelation just to prove to you that nobody agrees about how to outline the book of Revelation, okay? Lots of different ideas about that. These are all good approaches. Um, Pick yours and proceed, all right? One last big question before we get into the book in chapter 1, we'll move quick through it. Interpretive approaches. How do we interpret this book? It's been the problem basically since the day it left the island of Patmos. Let me give you five options for how people make sense of this book. First is the preterist view. The preterist view. It says that Revelation was mainly or entirely fulfilled in the first century. So the value of this view, the strength of this view, is that it's really serious about the original audience. Who got the book in the first place? It's got to make sense to them. The weakness of this view is that there does seem to be some stuff in Revelation that hasn't fully and finally happened yet. So it's tough to take the whole book and to squeeze it into the second century A.D. Roman province of Asia and say it all happened there. So there's limitations. Most of the people who hold to the preterist view are liberal Protestants who don't believe in the inspiration of Scripture and don't believe in miracles, for whatever that's worth. Preterist view. Second, the historicist view argues that Revelation describes the entirety of church history. So basically what these people try to do is they try to start at the beginning of Revelation and work to the end, and they try to lay it out as a timeline across Human history starting with Jesus and his ascension to heaven all the way through church history up to the present. They just try to make Revelation lay out on the last 2,000 years of church history. 
Okay? The problem with that is people have been trying to do this for a long time. They tried to make it match 1,000 years, 1,100 years, 1,200 years, 1,500 years, 1,900 years, 2,000 years. Everything keeps changing when you stretch the book out longer and longer over history, and nobody really agrees what ought to line up where, but that's the historicist view. Uh, thirdly, the idealist view says this book really isn't talking about actual specific things. It's really talking about timeless realities. So the value of this view is that there are some timeless things in the book of Revelation, and we're going to talk about those. But there's also some stuff that really has to connect to the original audience, and there is some stuff that really connects to things that will happen in the future as history unfolds. Uh, number four, the futurist view argues that Revelation describes events that take place at the end of human history. This is by far the most popular way to interpret the book of Revelation in the United States of America. It's the most popular because of a group of theologians known as dispensational theologians. They started with a guy named Darby, John Nelson Darby. And the idea here is pretty simple. Uh, it's the idea in the Left Behind books. It's the idea that this book, Revelation, after you get past the letters, talks about the events of the very, 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 very end of history. That's the focus of the book. It's all about the end. So people who hold this view are constantly obsessed with, is the clock about to start ticking on the end? Did it start with Saddam Hussein? A lot of people thought it did. Did it start with Mahmoud Aminajad of Iran? A lot of people thought it did. Is it starting with Vladimir Putin? A lot of people think it did. This is nothing new. People have thought this for a long time, and they think it's only about the end. You understand the limitation of that view. What does that mean to the day-to-day -day life of the people who lived 2,000 years ago in the Roman province of Asia? How does all that stuff, if it's only about the end, how does that affect people who have lived for the last 2,000 years of church history? It's hard to make that connection in any meaningful way. Okay, one last approach. This is going to be what we do. It's the eclectic view. It tries to combine some of the strengths of these different approaches. Preterism, idealism, futurism. Basically, we're saying, look, this book has to make sense to the original audience. The real people who got the book in the first place. It does have timeless truths. There are things that have happened throughout church history that we can see reflected in the book, and there are some things in the book that haven't happened yet. They're coming in the future. And it just tries to hold all of those things together. It makes sense. Listen, it makes sense that you would need an eclectic view if the book is a combination of apocalypse, prophecy, and letter. Like it's a hybrid book to begin with. So you're going to have to use a lot of tools in your interpretive tool bag to make sense of the book. So all of that by way of introduction. There's some stuff that I included in your notes, theological emphases, uh, other things that I thought were helpful. I'm going to skip all the way down to a quote from Nancy Piercy and a quote from Michael Gorman. And then we're going to jump in. Revelation wasn't written to entertain or to set out a timeline for the future or to satisfy our curiosity about when Christ will return. Revelation was written to fortify Christians to live in the world 
enduring its harsh treatment and alienation with a firm confidence that this world is not all that there is and that, in fact, what may seem like defeat is going to give way to victory. That's what the book is. Uh, quote from Gorman, Revelation is not about the Antichrist. If you thought that's what you were coming for, sorry, guess what? The word Antichrist is not in the book of Revelation. It shows up exactly zero times. Not mentioned. It's not about the Antichrist. It's about the living Christ. It's not about a rapture out of this world. Guess how many times the word rapture shows up in Revelation? Zero. Zero. Not about a rapture out of this world, but faithful discipleship in this world. What an indictment on us as Christians that we tend to get more excited about books on the Antichrist than the living Christ. And what an indictment on us that we tend to get more excited about the idea of being raptured out of this world and missing tribulation than we get about being serious about preparing ourselves to endure tribulation and to be faithful in the midst of it. Okay? Introduction is over. Let's talk about chapter 1. 